Welcome back. Hour three of The Daily Show. You got Bob Baskerville here with John Reed. Um, hey, given the gravity of what went down yesterday and what we've been talking about in the last hour, we felt it would be good to get the perspective of someone who's not affiliated with the University of Tennessee, but does have an understanding of what's happening in the NIL marketplace. What latitude does the NCAA really have to govern the way they are trying to, as evidenced by the, I'm using air quotes here, investigations that they have underway with schools like Florida and now Tennessee. Joining us today is Jason Belzer, who is the founder and owner of Student Athlete NIL. He's an attorney, adjunct professor of sports business law at Rutgers University. Jason, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, man, no problem. Uh, Looking forward to it. So maybe set the table for us as we dig in on this topic. Um, If you could, elaborate for a moment on Student Athlete NIL and how your company interacts with college athletes versus what we hear about often, which are collectives that are embedded with conference schools. Sure. So student-athlete NIL, Sunil, is the leader in the collective space, but what we really refer to them as is agencies of record. So we work with over 40 different universities around the country uh, and work to run their collectives. So we work with Vanderbilt, as an example, and run Anchor Impact. Uh, we run Crimson and Cream at Oklahoma and lots of other institutions. So the way that we approach things is a little bit different than how many other independently operated collectives run, similar to, say, Spire at Tennessee. Uh, when we go into a university, we are not solely donor-focused. We are looking at basically building an infrastructure for these universities to be able to transition into what will become a revenue-sharing situation with student athletes at some point. Um, And so as an example, uh, Vanderbilt, every single football player at the university is signed with us, every single basketball player is signed with us. And all of that information is being reported back to the university. So we are providing 100% transparency to the university. And the goal of that is to be able to create a infrastructure that is transparent, it's streamlined, operates within the rules, the state law, the NCAA rules, or whatever rules the university itself chooses to operate under. Yeah, one of the things we talked about a little earlier, and I'd like your perspective, of course, you're you're in this business, but I'd still like your perspective on this, is that I think based on some of the uh, pursuits that the NCAA has put out there, that we're at a moment in time where... I. There's been a lot of talk in the past on some of these collectives that operate independently, like you had mentioned, that um, there might be a level of sophistication that's happening, given the amount of money that's at hand in the in the marketplace writ large, um, in terms of, do you think that some of these investigations that are happening right now might predicate some more um, need to again, elevate the level of what's going on with these NIL collectives where it's less of just, hey, let's, uh, let's do a project together you know, with an athlete. And you know, there, again, there's lots of uh, significant money changing hands here. And to your point, it's not always just tied directly to donors and boosters. Um, any, any thoughts on that as, uh, as this kind of continues to uh, evolve? And, and I'd also love your perspective, as much as you can speak to it, on how much money is really out there when you think in terms of NIL, just 
again, across the country and all these Power Five you know, teams and the big conferences, all of that. Do you, do you have some insight on that? Yeah, so I'll start with answering your last question first. As it relates to the amount of money, the average P4 collective on the football side specifically in 2024 will be around three and a half to $4 million. That's average across the board. In the SEC, that number is closer to about $8 million. So you have SEC schools, the 16 or so schools that will be spending in the area between six to upwards of 12 or $13 million on football specifically. When it relates to basketball, uh, the average P4 collective this year will be in the area of about 750 to a million dollars with some of the top institutions spending well over two, two and a half million dollars. Uh, so from a total ecosystem standpoint during the 23, 24 season, this past season, both football and basketball, there was around $700 million that was floating through collectives. Um, Sunil controls the largest position in that space, but still a very small position compared to the majority of institutions which have independent operators. And that goes to your first question. The level of sophistication of an independent collective is almost always very unsophisticated. Most independent collectives are not run by full-time people. It's often a group of former alumni who have expertise in certain areas. Maybe somebody's a lawyer, somebody's an accountant. They've come together. Um, some of them are operated by independent agencies. Again, Spire is a good example of that. But there's not a whole lot of sophistication as it relates to how the operation is being done, primarily because the majority of the money that's running through the collective is being used to go directly to student-athletes. It's not being invested into the operations. Many collectives, the majority of independently-run collectives, are nonprofits, which is a whole other you know, issue. Um, and in 99% of those cases of independently-run collectives, there's no transparency that's occurring with the university. Uh, so the university has no real idea of what's actually being paid, how it's being paid, and if we look at this from like an objective standpoint, imagine if we went back five years ago and I said, well, you know, there's going to be a, a quote unquote marketing agency that every NFL team is going to have. And, you know, you and I are going to start one and we're going to start paying Tennessee Titan players and the, the Titans are not going to know exactly what their guys are getting paid and they have to call us every time they need something. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, so this is a transitory period of time because we've essentially had complete deregulation of the rules. There's no enforcement uh, of those rules, really. And so this is what's come to pass. It's unlikely that this is going to continue for maybe another year before there is some sort of either deregulation by the NCAA to allow schools to be more involved or the courts make a decision as to how revenue share or employment status needs to affect these student-athletes. Yeah, you talked a lot about the average money being paid across the SEC and the total numbers floating around. I'm curious, do you have any type of idea on the number, kind of the breakdown of how the money is actually raised in terms of, because at, at Tennessee, for example, Aspire, you know, fans can donate money per month, you know, individually and kind of just as a subscription, a donation. And then you also have the business side of it where they're going and they're doing these business deals with with local companies and raising money that way. Are there any numbers floating around about the average breakdown of independent versus business money? Yeah, raised? so from a, 
Yeah, from an aggregate standpoint, about 95% of the dollars that collectives are currently paying is donor funded. Wow. It is, it, there's not a lot of business that's happening. Again, at certain, certain collectives that have certain operations like us, we are driving business revenue, but even at our biggest collectives, I'll take this example, University of Oklahoma, we probably drove in about a million dollars in true commercialized revenue last year at the University of Oklahoma, but that is only a, a small percentage of the larger donor-funded model, um, which is not sustainable, clearly. And what it really is is that the universities and I, I don't know what's happening at Tennessee, right? I, I'm not privy to the operations of the university, but based on what other SEC schools are doing, the universities are essentially diverting their fundraising and donor revenue that would usually come directly to the school, and they're pushing it towards the collective. So instead of, you know, hey, we need to raise $10 million to build a new facility or whatever that may be, we want you to put that money into the collective, and this way that $10 million can then be redistributed to our football and men's basketball team for the most part. Women's basketball is getting some stuff at Tennessee, but outside that, vast majority of the money, we will transact over, if, if we do nothing else this year, we will transact over $35 million, and about 97% of that will go to football and basketball. Men's basketball and football. So women's sports are pretty much seeing nothing as it relates to the collective dollars because most of that is donor money. We're here with Jason Belzer, founder and CEO of Student Athlete NIL, Sunil. Is that, am I saying that correctly, Jason? When yes, you talk exactly about it correct. from an acronym perspective. Um, so you talked, um, let's talk for a second uh, about the NCAA, and, and you spoke to it in one of your comments, you talked about deregulation, some level of that that's, you know, going to have to happen. We're, of course, in our... Uh, layman's perspective putting out there that the NCAA is, you know, playing a bit of catch up uh, in terms of trying to govern some of the things that are happening. And of course, it hits home with what just broke yesterday with the University of Tennessee. And you may have seen the, you know, the university chancellor has fired back with, uh, you know, kind of a game on statement, like, you know, we don't agree with this and we're, we're going to fight. Um, do you feel that if you think about it, and this goes beyond NIL, we talk about conference realignment and all the madness that has happened. Um, do you feel some of this is the NCAA feels that it's it's on its heels a little bit as an overall organization, and they've they've got to apply themselves better late than never on what's going on with NIL, and and can they really be effective at that? So you're a thousand percent correct in your hypothesis. The reality is that the NCAA as it stands today, is facing an existential crisis. And so what it has done over the last several months, uh, including Tennessee, we'll look back at Florida State as well, and likely Florida upcoming, but especially with Tennessee, is this is sort of the burn the boats mentality of the NCAA realizes that if they cannot enforce, they are done. And they're probably done regardless. But they need to be able to come in and show that they still have some sort of credibility with universities to enforce the rules. The reality is that in the current environment that exists, it is an absolute free-for-all. And I've likened this for years, even before NIL actually happened. I said, 
when NIL happens, what we're going to have, the best thing to think about it is that it's like the fall of the former Soviet Union, right, where you have all of these entities that are operating essentially as a state entity being privatized. And the reality is that what is happening right now is that you have a cartel, right, you have a monopoly of these institutions that is falling apart, and there is no one that's governing anything, right? There are different state laws. There's no federal legislation. And so everybody's trying to get ahead. Everybody is essentially robbing each other blind. That is what's happening in the transfer portal. And the NCAA, who is supposed to be overseeing all of this, is attempting to be able to say, this is not working. Now, there's two, two big issues to think about here. Number one, why I, I actually believe that what Tennessee is doing is the right stance from a legal perspective. They did agree to these rules right? The NCAA may not be able to enforce, but every rule that the NCAA has is rules that were voted by the members. And so Tennessee, even though there are only one vote in in a big pool, is part of that. And the SEC makes up a very big piece of that as well. So that's the first issue, is that Tennessee agreed to play by these rules or not have rules in the first place. And so now they're having to kind of deal with this issue. But the other element is that the NCAA is not completely stupid. And they realize that this is a reaction that was probably going to happen. I was actually surprised when I saw Florida State take it on the chin and accept what the NCAA did. My assumption in that case is because of everything else that Florida State is dealing with in terms of trying to exit the ACC from a financial and litigation standpoint, it didn't make sense because Florida State is betting that the, that the NCAA is going to fall apart before they even have to pay any of those penalties. What the NCAA is trying to do is they are, in a way, baiting Tennessee. And in a way, if Tennessee says, fine, we did wrong, we're going to accept the penalties, then the NCAA wins. But if Tennessee says, no, we're going to go against you, NCAA, then what the NCAA is doing is they need ammo to go to Congress and say, Congress, we need you to step up and give us an antitrust exemption so that we can enforce the rules and put into place what we need to put into place. And if they have institutions going against them, member institutions, and saying, we're not going to follow your rules, in reality, it still may not mean anything at the end of the day, right? This is all hypothetical. This is all a basically they're in a casino at this point, but it actually may help their cause to get Congress to do something about it. Because Congress, as we know, with everything that's going on in in Washington, D.C. right now, is too busy to worry about college athletics, seriously. And it's going to take a crisis for for Congress to make a decision as to whether or not they're going to make a decision. If they're going to do it, it's going to take a major crisis. And the NCAA knows that they have to push for that because if they don't figure this out in the next nine months, it's they're all toast, right? We have a case in the court system right now that if it doesn't get settled, it's going to cost the NCAA and its member institutions, including SEC schools, billions of dollars. And so right now it's basically a game of cat and mouse between the NCAA and the NCAA has nothing to lose at this point because if they don't fight, they're, they're done. I like to put things on a number scale because it helps my dumb mind grasp things better. On a scale of 0 to 100, 
How much do you think Tennessee fans should be worried about the accusations made by the NCAA yesterday? Uh, on a scale of 1 to 100? Yeah. Five. <laughs> I, I wouldn't really be too afraid. I said 13. Uh, Is I, 13 too high or too low? Uh, it's a little low because you're not thinking about all the other factors that go into, even if they walk away scot-free, what the implications of that may be. Um, I mean, look at what happens. You know, Tennessee might eventually say, we won't accept this, but what we'll do is we'll disband Spire, just as a hypothetical, right, which is essentially what happened at Florida State. And that effect may hurt Tennessee at the end of the day because any of the existing infrastructure that they have from an NIL standpoint would no longer be there. Right. So there's other pieces to worry about. But from a sanction standpoint, a, you know, we're going to get slapped with a five year postseason ban. That's not going to happen in this situation. Because the reality is that if this all comes to pass, Spire is going to have to take one on the chin. Right. They're going to have to say, we were the ones that did this wrong and we are at fault and we are absolving the university of liability. And they're going to come to a settlement. The NCAA cannot sit here and litigate. They don't have the money. They don't have the resources or the time to do this. And so it's likely that this gets fixed or go to court and they hope, hey, this is going to take a year or two to figure out regardless. And by then, everything else is going to get resolved and it's going to get thrown away, thrown away anyway in the new system. Jason, this has been very, very helpful. It was just the kind of uh, framing, I think, at least speaking for myself, that I, I wanted to to hear about, uh, given, again, the current events uh, swirling around here in Knoxville. And you brought up a really good point, too, uh, in terms of, like we said, it's existential. It's like the NCAA, one way or another, needs to get some movement on this if they want to have any sort of way forward to govern some of this, and it's only going to get amplified over time. So uh, it was great hearing your perspective. Uh, as we wrap up here, uh, can you let our listeners know how to uh, perhaps follow your work and what you're doing at Student Athlete NIL? Because you have a really interesting background. I think you're a great follow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm uh, social media is just Jason Belzer, uh, all my social handles. And if you go to studentathletenil.com, you can see some information and um, you know, if, if you're interested in the NIL space, interested in knowing what student athletes are being compensated on, then we're the ones to follow because we're, we're trying to be as transparent as possible. We are trying to aggregate data and put it out there. We know that this system needs major reform, and we realize that we are in a position to be able to assist with that process. And our hope is that more and more schools embrace what we're doing. And um, we try to fix uh, a very broken system, but something that I think all of us love very much and, and don't want to see drastically affected by all of this. Amen to that. All right, my friend, thank you very much. Uh, have a good rest of your week and um, hope to talk again sometime soon. Thanks, Jason. Likewise. Take care. Okay. All right, Sam, send us to break. We'll uh, lighten it up a little bit. you got some overrated, underrated topics coming up after the break. We'll see if Bob can uh, be sweet for 10 minutes and, and, and play. <laughs> But uh, stick with us. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. Everybody's thinking about you. So that was interesting. I think the biggest takeaway for me um, in all of that, it, it, one thing I wanted to do was get maybe a, a point of view that's 
on a more national basis. Uh, but this, obviously, Jason was a guy who's paying attention to what broke in the news yesterday. But he brought up a good point that, uh, and we've talked about it. I, I use the term existential, and he did too. I want that noted um, that, and unbeknownst to him, he, he said the same thing. And that is the NCAA, this is really important. Uh, universities are watching, the NCAA is watching, because if Tennessee's volley back yesterday from Donde of, hey, we're not taking it, we're going to fight on this, um, the, the NCAA may then have the, the grounds to be able to go back to Congress and say, we need more juice in this conversation, you've got to help us here. Jason mentioned it, whether Congress will be willing to listen, because they, they do have a few other really critical things going on. Um, that, could be, that could be game over for the NCAA, basically. If they don't get support from a higher level or a higher power um, to try to govern this thing down the line, you know, there were all sorts of terms yesterday. They're all the same. The, you know, toothpaste is out of the tube. The genie's out of the bottle. The horses out of the barn, all that stuff. Um, it's kind of, we're at that moment. And I think what's going to happen with this deal and some others in the next matter of months is going to be really telling. I am completely comfortable with Tennessee being the one to lead the charge. It's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. You know what? I think so too. I, I do think that we started a new trend of fan bases feeling like they have power when it comes to their coaching hires. I do truly feel that way. You, you've seen that with a couple of other fan bases whenever some names have gotten leaked, them feeling like they can stop that or even coming, being able to stop it or get their coach fired, kind of like Auburn did with Brian Harson. They could have just got him out way quicker than most other schools would have been able to. They stepped it up a little bit. They were like, hey, he's having sex with one of his workers. And I don't know if that was ever proven or not, but he got on the internet and that got the heat cranked up on Harson. Next thing you know, he was fired not too long after. But I do think we kind of were trendsetters when it came to that. And I do think Tennessee can be the one that kind of sticks it to the NCAA. At the very least, like I said, Donda said, lawyer up. Let's go. We got money to spend. We are not one of these lower-ranking schools. We are one of the most powerful sports programs in the country. We are, as Danny White calls it, America's college sports city. Nothing stops this train. You're not going to stop our momentum. Obviously, that's led by football. You're not going to attack our football program, and you're not going to attack our beautiful baby boy, Nico, the Polynesian prince who was promised the Tennessee tribal chief. We're going to fight for it. And I'm completely fine with that. I did feel a little bit better when he said, ah, you know, 13 might be a little low, but you know, Tennessee will be all right. Yeah. Because he's, you know, he's someone who has no ties to Tennessee. Right, so that makes me feel like, hey, you know, it's not just necessarily a, a homer telling us that's there's nothing to worry about. That's someone that has no benefit for lot to lying uh, to us. Yeah, it's that very thing we were talking about earlier. Are we a little thin skinned as a fan base on all these other things? Um, right. And so it was good to that's that was really the goal to get a perspective from a professional who's not here and is also not you know someone that's got a bone to pick with Tennessee like some of these. Well, I'm gonna leave it. You're, t you're telling me to be nice, so I'll leave Be it sweet, Bob. Yeah. Be sweet, Bob. Let's play some overrated and underrated. Overrated. Very overrated. It's overrated. Overrated, my friend. Overrated. I want to tell you why. I think that's a solid rated right there. It's perfect rated. He underrated, man. 
He got some swag. He has some real swag. Lobsters are underrated. They don't die. All righty. Overrated, underrated. Some news coming out in the NBA. Overrated, underrated. The Steph Curry versus Sabrina Ionescu three-point contest. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to seeing it, but I, I think maybe it's a little overrated. Uh, I think that uh, um, if they think that's going to save part of the Saturday night NBA stuff, I think they're mistaken. But I, I'd probably watch. I, I'm interested in it, but I, I wouldn't say it's underrated. Either. Do we know what the format's going to be? I, I think it's just kind of normal. Uh, See, I don't want that. I want head-to-head. Head. I want head-to-head. Right or am I wrong? Do you want? Well, to it do says the, head to head. That's here. what I. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Okay, I want to go shot. I want to do like white man can't jump style. You ever seen white man can't jump, Sam? At the beginning of white man can't mm-hmm. jump. Yeah. Five from the top of the key. Let's go. Make miss, make miss. Who's going to make the most out of five? I, I want some pressure on there. Not hey, you know, you're going to shoot the ball twenty five times. There's going to be money balls, and we'll have a score. I, I want pressure. Do we think Steph wins, or do we think that Ionescu wins? Or do we think that Steph lets Ionescu win? Like a little battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King? Probably C. Do you think he's going to let her win? I kind of think so. You think so? Just put over the put over the girl, make her feel good. Hey, the WNBA is good. Ionescu's a baller. Silver I do think maybe he like pumping the NBA a little bit. WNBA. Curry's probably comfortable enough in his skin as, as the greatest shooter of all time, but also at the same time, he still would be losing to a girl. The thing that surprises me is, uh, and again, I don't proclaim to follow women's basketball that regularly, but when Ionescu was in college and she was a dominant player, she was more of like, to me, like a, almost like a a female Jason Kidd, you know, did a little bit of everything. I didn't, I didn't realize she was a prolific three point shooter, but I guess, I guess she is. Yeah. I was going to say she was a triple, triple double person. I was going to say Rajon Rondo just because maybe he was in the news yesterday, but yeah, Jason Kidd. Not really just a Caitlin Clark type of shooter. Correct. I was going to say, maybe Caitlin Clark next year is a better match. That would be – I'd watch that. Yeah. Like Caitlin sure. Clark now. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. oh, yeah. on Saturday or Sunday, WNBA. I guess, but just bring her now. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I'm not going to apologize. I love watching Caitlin oh, Clark, yeah. i got to say. Yeah. I'll be honest. I, whenever I saw this, it's like, it's pretty cool. So I'll say it's underrated. I know some okay. people might blow back and be like, oh, it's women's basketball or whatever. But INS was a baller, and like I said, if they do it right, I want to do five from the top of the key. Just rotate one after another, one after another. Is she the best three-point shooter in the WNBA? I don't know. I don't know if she is or not. She shot 44% from three last year, so yeah, that's pretty good. That's that's obviously really good. Okay. Uh, Overrated, underrated. Uh, This year's Super Bowl matchup. I know kind of after the championship game, some people might have been rooting for the Lions. Some people might have been rooting for the Ravens to knock off the the Taylor Swift hype train. Overrated, underrated this year's Super Bowl matchup. Um, I think it's overrated. Uh, two good teams. Obviously, Kansas City is kind of hitting their their stride at just the right time. Um, but because of the spectacle around it, with with Kelsey and Taylor and Brittany Mahomes and don't forget Jackson, Jackson and the you know the State Farm commercials with Mahomes and Andy Reid and and so I think the culprit in this is really everything swirling around the Chiefs makes it overrated for me. It's a great matchup. It's a great matchup team wise, but I'd say it's overrated for that very reason. I'm kind of getting fatigued hearing about all the other stuff swirling, all the noise. 
I gotta say, I feel like it's a little underrated just because I don't think we're giving Patrick Mahomes credit for being on the Tom Brady trajectory. Like Tom Brady got us to our TVs. We have maybe the new Tom Brady and Andy Reid, who is, you know, maybe going to pass Bill Belichick. Like, how many more Super Bowls does Andy Reid have to win before we're like, hey, he is on Bill Belichick's level, if not past Bill Belichick? Because unlike Bill Belichick, Andy Reid's done it at two places. Yeah, I know he never won a Super Bowl in Philadelphia, but he made a lot of conference championships and he made it to the Super Bowl. And if Donovan McNabb wasn't throwing up on himself because he was tired and out of shape and fat at the end of the, the two-minute drill of that Super Bowl, maybe they would have won that Super Bowl or at least gotten into overtime. How many how many more games does Andy Reid have to win? And also, he should get consideration because of that whole punt, pass, and kick thing he did when he was a kid. And he looked like, he looked like Zach Eady out there, right? <laughs> He's a prodigy. He's a prodigy. Although, I will say... I don't. I won't go as far as calling thirteen-year-old Andy Reid a big giant circus freak. He was just a really large boy. Yeah, there are plenty of boys I think walking around that look like that. Yeah. Now maybe not in those pads, <laughs> having to compete against kids that are like half his size. But I won't give him circus freak level. But he he's he as big as the circus. <laughs> he's an NFL. He's an NFL lifer. He is an NFL lifer. He was a grown man at the age of thirteen. But I'm serious. Like how many how many championships does he have to win? Because right now. We have the new Brady and Belichick going after, what, a third Super Bowl together? Mm -hmm. That puts them in terms of legendary status all time. Like, you know, that's, you know, going back to Walsh and Montana and Young and, you know, I guess I couldn't really think of who the Dolphins quarterback was. Who was the Dolphins quarterback? Marino? Marino. No, no, no. The guy won Super Bowls uh, with... uh, Oh, Bob Greasy? Yeah, Greasy. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But like I mean, I guess they did the only one what two together, so maybe not the same thing. But yeah. just quarterback, quarterback, coach combos is what I'm going for. But they won. Dolphins won back to back. Yeah, they won two, right? Yeah. Andy Reid. You know, we talk about Bill Belichick being only 26 ways, uh, 26 wins away from the all-time record. Andy Reid's at 258. I mean, that basically just puts him four seasons behind Belichick. That puts him, you know, six seasons of ten wins away from being right on the doorstep. I don't know if Andy Reid wants to coach long enough, but, like, if he coaches six more years with Patrick Mahomes, there's a chance he retires the all-time winningest NFL coach of all time. It's interesting. Like, his age is only 65. Belichick's 71. So, like, you know, the weight differences, I get that. But, like, you could easily tell me Andy Reid coaches the next six or seven years. And he's going to have Patrick Mahomes for all six or seven of those years. So, if he averages 10 or 11 wins a year, that makes him the all-time winning as head coach. Can I ask a quick question? What you guys think of the <laughs> State Farm commercial where they're sitting at the restaurant? In the nug- Do it again. Yeah, with this the, time with, with the Nuggies. The Nuggies. I have to admit, I, I've grown to like that, man. It cracks me up. That one's great. I also like the uh, the one with the when he, you know, it was, it was a callback from the '90s where they come up to the guy painting the field and it's like, "You missed a letter." <laughs> yeah. It's just chefs instead of chiefs. Like that's a that was an iconic one from my childhood and. Reads in that one, and the the one with Mahomes and Kelsey, I think, are funny too. The I like the Chiefs' run of owning State Farm or whatever it is. I like them. I saw a graphic of breakdowns of like teams that people were rooting for last week, though, and like they completely flipped from like three years ago when everyone was rooting for them against the Patriots, except like New England. It had flipped, and like now everyone except Kansas, Kansas, and Missouri. We're rooting for the Ravens in the AFC Championship. So they have become kind of the the villain, if you will. 
But we have the next Tom Brady, the current Bill Belichick, going up against what we have called all year the best team in the NFL at, and a historic franchise. I think that Super Bowl is as good as it gets. I'll say underrated. I'm kind of with you, John. Kind of with Do you. it again. This time with those <laughs> nuggies. <laughs> Uh, sticking in I, the, and also one more thing. Yeah. Uh, you, you got something, Bob? No, I was just gonna say it's just him calling them the nuggies. Yeah, is yeah. what <laughs> makes nuggies. me laugh. I, I like to think he ad libbed that and that he's a true artist. But like, you see a quote that came out either last night or today where he was recruiting a defensive player in free agency, and he had a line just like, "Yeah, when you see red, you think Super Bowls. Go to the Chiefs. Like basically, like we're out here stacking Super Bowls. You're like, that's a pretty badass line. That Andy, that Andy Reid's flopping it out like that. Like, hey, yeah, come play with us." We go to the Super Bowl. That's what we do. And right now, that's what they do. All right. Uh, overrated, underrated. Speaking a little bit of some potentially elite quarterbacks, Justin Herbert. Saw the news that Jim Harbaugh is apparently, reportedly, a $16 million man. That's what the number was that he is getting from the Chargers, mm. which was surprising because of how like little they spent money elsewhere. It was always the, the talk, but... $16 million for Jim Harbaugh is because of Justin Herbert. And Starstruck by him. I mean, that is a little nerdy <laughs> for Harbaugh to say, but I think I think Herbert's overrated. I think he has been, but I also think that all of that's going to like kind of come to fruition over the next couple of years. I think we'll look back and be like, Herbert wasn't overrated the whole time. He just had bad coaching. I think ultimately Harbaugh is going to make him the player he should be, and I, I think Herbert will go and, and be a top six, top seven NFL quarterback moving forward pretty comfortably. I'd say underrated. I, I, I have been always impressed with his physical prowess. Um, he's slipped a little in terms of efficiency, et cetera. I'm going to hold the situation with the coach as the as the culprit there um, until I see what he does under Harbaugh. I, I, I still think the guy's – a franchise-level quarterback. It's why Harbaugh wanted that job. Uh, I I would say underrated. He's been overrated up until this point, but yeah, I think I think he'll he'll all of a sudden he'll be with Harbaugh and he'll be like, yeah, like you said, Bob. He was the coaches were holding him back. That that was the problem. And maybe that's true. Maybe that, that maybe that is the issue. Although uh, Brandon Staley apparently set to almost go back to the Rams. That's heating up there. Okay. Kind of. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Raheem Morris. Raheem Morris left. Staley, who of course used to be their defensive coordinator, they're talking about bringing him back and kind of doing a little rehabilitation program mm-hmm. with him. It's amazing how NFL coaches just recycle. Man, it's it's unbelievable. I, I get that mindset, but like, is his career just supposed to be done? Yeah, like if you lose as a head coach, no, like I agree. When you say like recycle, I mean like he he might still be a good defensive mind, although he didn't show that with the Chargers. But like you know, at his age is just supposed to be it. It's your last shot. No, and I, I think maybe part of it is it's a sport that's under the magnifying glass so much. It probably happens in all sorts of businesses, you know, where people go and they, you know, yeah, their their career's not over when they get ousted from a job or leave a job. Have there been a lot of like disgraced CEOs in business that like maybe don't get to be a CEO right away again, but like go down and like you are on a board or, you know, doing something and rehabilitating you grab power again or do you kind of get retired and yeah i'd say at ceo level there's more of that where you get you know big golden parachute and you move on um and do start your own business do something entirely different but i'd say there's a lot of senior executives that are like at vp svp evp level depending upon the company where yes they resurface 
at another place. And it might even be a lesser title, but it's like still a big job. Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit of retread there and recycling. True. Speaking of more coordinators, uh, underrated, overrated, the Pittsburgh Steelers hiring Arthur Smith as their offensive coordinator. Well, if Arthur Smith is used to bad quarterback play and, <laughs> uh, he, and and like running the ball, Pittsburgh's the place for him. If I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, like it doesn't excite you. It doesn't excite you. Now, if you tell me he's gonna turn Najee Harris into to Derrick Henry and that you know he can find him a quarterback this offseason, and you know maybe if they actually go out and try to trade for somebody, like if you're Pittsburgh, you should be calling Chicago, I think, and saying, hey. We want Justin Fields. What is it going to take? Because I do think the rest of their team is probably good enough to be elevated by a quarterback. And I think Justin Fields would be a big upgrade of what they have. But, like, right now, on its surface, I'll say the hire of Arthur Smith is very overrated. I, I don't know how that would get you excited. Agree. I don't even really have to say much more. It's uh, There's nothing that's – and I, you have better experience with Arthur Smith as a Titans fan – I just there's nothing I've seen that's ever impressed me much. He was he was awesome with the Titans at first. I mean he he truly was, and you know a lot of that was like, hey, Derrick Henry's going to run the ball, and we're going to hit play action, and Tannehill's going to be a breath of fresh air. And we got at the time actually had some pretty good weapons with Corey Davis and young AJ Brown and Johnny Smith. Like you had some good weapons, but the offense was really good with Arthur Smith. But then I, I can't get out. Like the moment that he started interviewing for those head coaching jobs before the Baltimore Ravens playoff game in Nashville, and he came in with a game plan that was completely predictable and stubborn, and you scored, like, 13 points, and, like, where you, you lost a game at home you should have won. Like, that was kind of the end of his career as far as I was concerned because he was underwhelming in Atlanta. And I do think as a coordinator, Bob, he makes the cardinal sin or he commits the cardinal sin of being accused of not getting his best players the ball. As a fantasy owner of Bijan Robinson last <laughs> right, season, right. yeah, I yeah. would concur. As um, anybody that's had Kyle Pitts on their team in the last three years, like you I had a, them both. Yeah, actually. you, you spent t- hopefully not on the same team. It felt yes. So, oh, did you finish in last? No, actually, made it to the playoffs, but uh, okay. but I dumped Pitts towards the yeah. end of the season. That's yeah. how bad it got. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's the biggest sin you can have as an offensive play caller is being accused of not getting the ball to your best players, trying to be too smart, and. You know, like, hey, we got Tyler Algier and Cordell Patterson. We're going to give them some carries today. Sorry, Bijan, you're not going to get the ball. Or we're not going to throw you six passes a game because he should have been catching six passes a game. And Kyle Pitts, you're going to be used as a decoy, and we're not really going to throw you the ball either. Like, that, that's bad. That's bad. When you think of the best offensive play callers, chances are they're going to be somebody that force feeds their best players. Andy Reid looks a lot better. Patrick Mahomes looks a lot better. Whenever you're throwing the ball to Travis Kelsey, 10 times. Mike McDaniel's a genius when he's throwing the ball to Tyree Kill 12 times a game. Matt, uh, Sean McVay went back to being a genius with Matthew Stafford because they threw the ball to Cooper Cup enough to get him almost 2,000 yards. And then you have 12, 14, 15 targets a game. That's t- It's typically that easy and, and sometimes. Like the, the Cowboys, think about how many times they targeted CeeDee Lamb per week. Think about how bad the Eagles offense looked when all of a sudden they quit targeting A.J. Brown. Sometimes it's just get the ball to your best players, and Arthur Smith doesn't do that. Or at least he didn't do that in Atlanta. I don't know if he's really got anybody to give the ball to in Pittsburgh. I mean, I guess like force feed George Pickens. George Pickens, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's all about the quarterback there. I mean, you could tell me it was just like, hey, he didn't have a quarterback in Atlanta. And I would say, okay, because Mariota and Ritter and, and Haneke are about the worst trio you could have in, in today's NFL. Yeah, I think it's just interesting that 
obviously had success in Tennessee and then just went to Atlanta and it's just completely I'll, I'll, night and day. I was going to say that trio is pretty bad, but then you look at the Mitch Trubisky, Kenny Pickett, Mason Rudolph trio. It's not much better in Pittsburgh. No, no. It, it, off of that for a second, though, but it's still in the NFL. So with Ben Johnson out of the picture, now there's a little bit of chatter. Could Belichick be back in a conversation with Washington? I think if you're Washington, yeah, that makes the most sense. I mean – as, so, as an owner that wants to make a splash, that just bought the team, that wants to show a new regime, I thought Belichick would have been kind of their first choice, or at least Vrabel would get a look. Instead, they're like, hey, we want a young offensive innovator. And Ben Johnson said he's staying in Detroit. There was some pushback that said, yeah, Ben Johnson was asking for Harbaugh money and wanted 16 to $18 million a year, and nobody wanted to pay it yet. And, you know, Slowick got a raise to stay in Houston. They said, you know, maybe he just wants to stay and get another year under his belt. I don't know exactly what happened there, but – yeah, if you're Washington, who else is left out there? It's true. If you're not going to hire one of those two coordinators, like do you go with McDonald from Baltimore? You know the defensive mind there that you know coached a good defense. Do you do you go with a proven legend like Belichick and just give him more control? I don't know. They're going for a second interview with Dan Quinn. I mean, like if you're the worst of those hires, if you're a Commanders fan, like that, that would probably send you over the edge. Like this owner sucks. Like this owner, this owner still sucks. I I was gonna say that I still stand by that the the Commanders is an attractive job with the new ownership and you know some decent tools and other things. Uh, They 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 should they should be going after Belichick at this point. I think there's probably a good group uh, a good group of fans that cross over that are both Orioles and Commanders fans. You know, being there in that area, you know, maybe they got grandfathered in from the, to the Orioles and, and D.C. and the football team when the Ravens and, you know, Nationals weren't really a thing. But going from Rod Rivera to Dan Quinn would be like the Orioles going from 27th in payroll to, like, 24th. Yeah. Like, we'll spend an extra couple million dollars, but not really anything significant. Yeah. yeah. Good job by you, Sam. Good topics. We'll wrap up the show, set you up for the rest of the day and tell you what we got planned for you tomorrow after the break. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. All right, Bob, you said there's been an update to the Tennessee NCAA situation. Yes, it's blown up on social media. If you uh, take a look at it, it's, uh, it is from the Attorney General AG, at AG Tennessee. Um, and it's... Uh, Basically, a post that came up about 20 minutes ago, and all it says, it's a bracket that looks like the cover page of a legal document, and it says, State of Tennessee and Commonwealth of Virginia as the plaintiff, the National Collegiate Athletic Association as the defendant. So so we went ahead and we, we not only did we lawyer up, but we have struck the first blow and said, hey, let's go. Yeah, it looks like it. Uh, again, this is coming from... Um, the chief legal officer for the state of Tennessee. So this is not like some parody account or, you know, some troll. This is uh, extremely legitimate. And uh, honestly, like you said earlier, feels good. Feels good that we're the ones kind of stepping up and saying we're not mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore, right? You hope. You hope it all goes swimmingly. You hope that you're able to just be a trailblazer and kind of be the face of defiance. I mean, I think Tennessee kind of embraces that at every every walk of the program and just kind of the, the, the fan base's mentality. Like it agree. is truly, like, in, as far as Tennessee fans are concerned, Tennessee versus everybody. So bring on the NCAA. It's true. 
Um, another quick note, um, was texting back and forth with the, the RTI guys last night after we endured that painful loss to South Carolina. Ryan Shumpert was very, very distraught. Uh, I, I saw that our boy Shumpert, who I, I give credit for for being you know kind of level-headed and, and, and maybe not as emotional as some people, I saw that he fired off that he thought the loss last night to South Carolina was the worst loss of the Rick Barnes era at Tennessee. Yes, he did. And, and, and uh, I begged to differ. Uh, I think John Osborne, my partner at RTI, begged to differ. But Ryan went and did some more digging last night um, and, and shared this information. It's actually pretty interesting. So the worst losses of Barnes's tenure against the spread, if you approach it that way, there were five – during his tenure at Tennessee, where Tennessee was a 10-point or greater favorite, and they lost. Top of the list was, I forgot all about this one, last year in Nashville against Colorado, 16-point favorite. Forgot all about that yeah, one. The yeah, the Colorado one was, was worse. It, yeah. It was it was equally as frustrating. I had forgotten about it, too, until I was actually talking about a similar thing. Uh, Stats by Will was talking about worse losses. Yeah. 13-and-a-half last night against South Carolina. 12 and a half versus Missouri last year, that game of the uh, half court shot that broke our heart. 10 and a half versus Kentucky last year. I don't remember that having that kind of spread. Um, so there's, there, yeah. there's been a few. And then minus 10 versus Alabama in 2021. And then a bunch of other ones. I still can, I contended that for me, the worst loss I've seen. Uh, in the Barnes era was at Vanderbilt last year. They were a 9.5-point favorite. Vanderbilt was playing better, obviously, but if you recall, that's the Julian Phillips game where he didn't flush the breakaway. He ran the clock, tried to run the clock out. They, they Tennessee handed that game to Vanderbilt, in my mind. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the lifeless game against Florida, at Florida, what was worse when we got blown up like 27 points was that last year or two years ago like it yeah maybe two years ago like that one was worse that, that was one of the low points like losing to old miss last year wasn't good either yeah other ones that were on this list i i, I don't view i understand the point spread i, I get yeah. that and you know that's sometimes a good way of measuring and it was large but South Carolina, to me, it was at least a respected team. That's, that's a yeah. team that came in. That's with, what I thought too. What, you know, sixteen and three or whatever. Like that, that was a team that had proven they could beat Kentucky, and at least proved that they had, they were tough. And their style of play that they beat you and and Tennessee looked lethargic. Like don't get me wrong, I'm not defending Tennessee's performance at all. I was embarrassed by the way Tennessee's team played, but I, I looked at South Carolina as a legitimate team. Whereas you know some of those other games, you know, you get blown out by that. Bad Florida team. You lose the Ole Miss, who wasn't good. Like to me, those are those are worse. Colorado, like you said, not not any good either. Yeah, and I mean the way I framed it last night was well, first of all, you could argue any loss is costly, but I would say it was a costly loss last night because again, if you have aspirations for a SEC conference title in the regular season, and we're hearing conventional wisdom saying you might have to go fifteen and three to do that. This is not a game you expected to lose. So from that perspective, no. it ranks high in that regard. Um, but but this, then, it's, it's up there as maybe the most disappointing loss sure. of, of a regular season game for Rick Barnes. I'll say that, like if you're talking about – because that's when the point spread and expectations come in. Right. Um, but I, I thought, you know, you lost by four. You just didn't shoot the ball well. You, you did bad things from the free throw line. 
But it wasn't like you laid down and quit and got blown out. There's been a couple of more embarrassing losses as far as I'm concerned and worse losses. But disappointing, I might I might say that, that this is up there in the top three or four for that. Yeah. For sure. Another game that uh, – last thing I'll say on this. Another game that I was incredibly disappointed in was back – it was that first-round NCAA tournament game against Oregon State. That was embarrassing, too. Like, that was rough, man. And I know they got to the Elite Eight and everything else, but that that's that was that was hard. Now, you were limping to the finish line that year. You just had no offensive identity. Like, you just played poorly. That that was maybe the low point of Rick Barnes's tenure as far as I'm concerned at Tennessee. Like, that, that was bad. And I do think he did some soul-searching, and Kenny Chandler helped prop that up, you know, the next year and get you back on track. But – to go from like where you should have missed the tournament during COVID before it got canceled to follow up with that year that was up and down, that, you know, cratered at the end. You had real questions about the Rick Barnes tenure, at least I did, of, you know, how long he was going to stick around and if he was going to kind of let this program slip. Now, of course, since then he has it. But I would say he would probably even admit that that was a moment where they had to do some evaluating and, and soul searching and change some things. On the way out, Sam, have you, uh, have you seen. The rumors coming out of Arkansas. Have you have you kept up at all with this? I heard about it last night, but I didn't uh, jump into this. Bob, have you heard about the uh, the locker room issues that's tearing Arkansas apart? No. Apparently, a love triangle is what a lot of Arkansas message boards are talking about and blaming for the demise of Arkansas. That they have three players romantically involved with each other that are. That that's what the rumors all coming on the message boards are, and like that explains like why some of the play like the one player left the program, and why the team looks like they hate each other, and why Musselman wow. looks miserable, and like why he's got a foot out the door. But that's the the spicy rumors coming from the the message boards. Musselman better not uh, take a shirt off anytime soon. Um. <laughs> I will say there have been some TikToks and pictures from the Arkansas locker room. And you're like, huh? Okay. <laughs> I had not heard that. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. But uh, hey, I have one last, last they're thing. They're going really hog wild down it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> hey um, Did anybody see Tom Brady on McAfee yesterday? I did not. Okay. If you can just maybe find a bit of it on YouTube. There is no doubt. I sent it to my wife and she agreed. Tom Brady's got some work happening on his face. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like unbelievable, like around his eyes and everything else. He does not look like. He looks very different than he did even just a, a year ago. Um, he definitely wants to stay young, clearly. And then he's and, and the beat goes on. He's what merging with Noble and yeah. I mean, huge. That he's not going to stay and do play by play or color commentary for ten years at Fox. There's no way, no way. That'll wrap it up for us. The Jake Mil- GI Jake Show. Jake Miller, Brett Holander, Marcus Young coming up next. Locked on Fan Run Radio.